Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. When you say the name Frankenstein, it brings to mind Boris Karloff's character in the 1931 film or Monster Mask worn for Halloween. The book, however, surprises those who think they know the story. It's a thought-provoking tale examining education, knowledge, and society. Goodreads.com says Frankenstein, an instant bestseller and important ancestor of both the horror and science fiction genres, not only tells a terrifying story, but also raises profound, disturbing questions about the very nature of life and the place of humankind within the cosmos. What does it mean to be human? What responsibilities do we have to each other? How far can we go in tampering with nature? In our age, of course, filled with news of organ donation, genetic engineering, bioterrorism, these questions are more relevant than ever. Well, Frankenstein, the 1818 novel by Mary Shelley, is the book chosen by this year's USU Common Literature Experience. And a Convocations lecture will be given tomorrow morning, 9.30 a.m. in the USU Kent Concert Hall by Associate Professor of English Mike uh, Brian McCuskey, who joins us in the studio today. Thanks. Thank you very much. And uh, by philosophy professor Charlie Heineman. Hi, Tom. Thanks for uh, coming back to the program. You both have been on the program, I think, for further other reasons. Um, like first question, how did you two get roped into this? What uh, you interest in, in the novel? What? Well, they couldn't keep us away, really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, we weren't roped in so much as invited to speculate on what a classic text version of Connections might be. We actually had to pay them $50 to bring us in. <laughs> so very good. We haven't seen that money yet, by the way. <laughs> this this uh, this novel, these themes, though it's set in the 18th century, written in the early 19th century, uh, Mary Shelley was very prescient. They're, they're, they're very relevant today. Yeah, we settled on Frankenstein because it's so different than the popular conception of of the story, you know, we pretty much all follow Boris Karloff and monster masks and all that. But when you actually pick up the novel and read it, it's a completely different story than you think you're going to get. And um, that was something we thought would be fun for the students to engage with. By the way, the, uh, the connections. This is for incoming freshmen, right? The whole mm-hmm. campus is invited to join in the common literature experience. And the, we've we've uh, reviewed some great books and had many of them here on Access Utah. So uh, Frankenstein, a great opportunity here. We can't have Mary Shelley, of course. So <laughs> no, <laughs> so we are you, poor substitutes <laughs> for Mary Shelley. You, you gentlemen are here. Uh, so um, yes, if you say Frankenstein, you you think Boris Karloff and the kind of stumbling monster, inarticulate. Uh, you might think young Frankenstein, you know, laugh or or the nineteen what ninety four movie with with Robert De Niro. Right. right. These green masks. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us a bit, maybe give us the cliff notes of the book, the outline of the plot. Well, the first problem with the book is that you expect to read the story of Victor Frankenstein, and what you get for about 20 pages is some guy named Robert Walton, who's writing letters home to his sister from his self-funded polar expedition. And these letters are are fairly unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're whiny and complaining, and he's... He's disappointed that he hasn't made more progress in his adventure, and he's looking for a friend. He feels like he has no friends. And so um, you have to kind of let Mary Shelley go to work on you, give, you know, take a leap of faith that eventually we're going to get to Victor Frankenstein, which we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his name comes up, and, uh, well, and he himself comes up right into the ship and then relays his story to the eager listening Walton and this, for me, uh, and I confessed to you earlier, Tom, that I don't think I had read the novel before this experience. And I hadn't either, so. Yeah, and, and so I had, uh, in some ways, I was in the ideal position for the incoming freshman, right, not having read the novel. I had the benefit, though, of being able to read it with uh, an expert in Victorian literature and with Brian. And so, hey, uh, hey all right. <laughs> no, Brian really uh, helped me to see some of the questions to raise. And I bring that up at this point because one of the questions you have to raise is how far you can trust the person who's telling you the story, right? Victor Frankenstein is relating his own story from his own perspective. And I think, it, for me, the, the genius of Mary Shelley is in allowing you to read between the lines to get a very different picture of Victor and uh, in his own character and his own values. The way Victor tells the story, nothing should have gone wrong. He doesn't sort of see what happened, but if you read between the lines, you can see that he makes a number of mistakes along the way. Um, he, th- this is really the story of a young man going off to college at the end of the 18th century. 
and he basically completely botches the job. Mm-hmm. And so we, one thing we thought that would be fun to talk about with the Connection students and for them to think about is what can we learn from Frankenstein about how not to go to USU? <laughs> <laughs> what, how, how can we avoid uh, a similar uh, fate here? Because he makes very specific mistakes, starting with the fact that he decides to ignore his family, he decides to ignore his teachers, he goes to his first class late, um, and it's, it's sort of a how-to manual for, for not succeeding at college. And in that sense, it pairs very nicely with the, one of the other books they're reading in Connections, which is Dr. Matt Sanders' book on becoming a learner. Mm-hmm. Frankenstein's subtitle really should be, you know, how one guy didn't become a learner. <laughs> and uh, part of this uh, uh, major theme of the book is uh, uh, use of knowledge, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and are there boundaries Mm-hmm. That we shouldn't go beyond, and that that comes right. This is something I learned from. Uh, there are a bunch of uh, some fun videos that YouTube put together on on the Connection site. Uh, this comes from the sort of the excitement of the times, right? Yeah, although it also connects with uh, earlier you were saying uh, how prescient uh, Mary Shelley was. Um, but I think that's because the questions that she's raising are just longstanding. Uh, the subtitle of Frankenstein is a modern Prometheus, right? And it goes back to this mythological figure who stole fire from the gods and then had to suffer for importing that technology to human society. So I think there's long there's been throughout, probably from the moment we began to know anything, there was some fear about unlocking that one secret that was going to be our demise. And you see that throughout literature, uh, so far as, as we can, and today, of course, as well, with all of the incredible potentials we have, both good and evil, I suppose, um, and what we might be doing to ourselves. And we can't help but ask, maybe there are some things we shouldn't know, although at the same time, we probably recognize how can you possibly pull yourself back from trying to know those things, yeah. right? How can you will ignorance upon yourself, yeah. right? Well, and one of the one of the huge mistakes that Victor Frankenstein makes is he, he gets to the point in the novel where he knows he can create life. He can reanimate this uh, stitched together uh, collection of dead bodies. And at that point in the novel, he has completely isolated himself. Mm-hmm. He... Um, He's not talking to his fiance. He's not talking to his father. His teachers don't know where he is. He's staying up way too late, pulling all-nighters in the cadaver lab. And it's a problem for him that he doesn't have anyone to talk to about the consequences of what he's doing, whether those consequences are scientific or moral or social. He just, he can do it, and so he does. And mm-hmm. the rest of the novel, then, is all about what happens as a result and uh, the lessons for us, and we we think about the, we have bioethicists, right? Sure. And we whole ethics departments mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to uh, talk about what's the line, right? How far can we go, or should we go? And then we have to decide that as a society. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've had discussions on this program um, on uh, genetically modified foods, mm-hmm, and, and mm-hmm. the discussion gets quite heated. It's the food we put into our bodies. You go a few steps further. Right. If, if we get the the ability to create life, mm-hmm. you know, genetically engineered life or this kind of life versus the other, we're, I mean, we're, we're there, we're close aren't right. We, right now. Yeah, most practically, I suppose, for, for us, it comes to questions about uh, sharing information and sharing knowledge. And probably most listeners are familiar with the, the problem of, say, publishing the instructions for making a nuclear weapon, right? Or in today's terms, more real is the, uh, the problems with publishing fairly easy recipes for very destructive viruses, right? And so there's really no effective way that we can limit our knowledge in these areas, but then we can raise political and social questions about how far can that knowledge be dispensed. Um, And, and, you know, trying to preserve at the same time some sort of value and freedom of expression and freedom of access to knowledge. These are really, really difficult questions. Although I suppose in Mary Shelley's case, uh, the economy is more at the individual level, right? How, uh, forgetting about the larger societal questions, uh, what does an individual do to sort of police themselves in terms of pursuing knowledge responsibly? There's this passage, if you don't mind, I'd like to read. Yes, sir. Um, this is Victor Frankenstein talking, it seems, directly to Walton about uh, giving moral advice about knowledge. And Victor well, says... Well, explain who Walton is. Oh, yeah, so Walton is... Uh, the person through whom we get Victor Frankenstein's story. Okay. So 
Frankenstein shows up in a ship, tells his story to Robert Walton. He sends it to his sister back in England, and we're reading these letters, even though after oh, 20 pages or so, you can almost forget that, or, or you naturally sort of do, until at the end when Walton shows up again. So Victor says, um, a human being in perfection ought always to preserve a calm and peaceful mind and never to allow passion or a transitory desire to disturb his tranquility. I do not think the pursuit of knowledge is an exception to this rule. If the study to which you apply yourself has a tendency to weaken your affections and to destroy your taste for these simple pleasures in which no alloy can possibly mix, then that study is certainly unlawful, that is to say, not befitting the human mind. And then he goes on to say that if only people had followed this rule, uh, you know, Greece wouldn't have been enslaved, Caesar would have spared his country, uh, America would have been discovered more gradually, and the empires of Mexico and Peru would not have been destroyed. It's great advice, right? Which he completely fails to follow, or at least by the time he's telling the story, he's already failed to follow it. Maybe this is a lesson he's learned. I, it doesn't give an indication of that, but it could be. One interesting distinction between Victor's situation and the situation now that we've been describing is there's a, a kind of wonderful naivete in the uh, early 19th century novel about Victor's ability to keep this knowledge secret. He, mm -hmm. Robert Walton, apparently, although you can't see him, mm -hmm. keeps sort of looking at Victor expectantly like, you know, aren't you going to tell me the secret of life? And Victor keeps saying, I can see by your looks that you, <laughs> you want to know, but I'm not going to tell you. Mm -hmm. And so the secret of creating life in the novel goes with Victor to his grave. But of course, there's no way to do that now mm -hmm. because you have teams of scientists, you have government-sponsored research, you have Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> There's no way to keep that kind of scientific uh, knowledge or, or technological advance private anymore. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's something that Shelley could not have foreseen, the impossibility of, right. of uh, a secret that big being mm -hmm. um, locked up in the mind of just one person. Right. And, and mm -hmm. you, I think you mentioned, uh, Charlie, that the... the uh, the n nuclear example. Yeah, right. You know, and, and is what uh, what Brian just said. Um, it, it's right. it, it's knowledge that's out. <laughs> yeah, you can't. You know, we're trying to put the genie back in the bottle, at least contain it. Right. And you have whole you know nations and commissions, and uh, you know that's a, a ongoing yeah. concern. Yeah, and cyber terrorism. I've recently been studying that, and the um, there's ever increasing levels of technology for creating havoc within other countries or other people's computer systems. And now today the model seems to be if you discover a new trick, right, exploit it quickly because pretty soon it'll be common knowledge and, and you won't have that edge. And that's pretty terrifying mm -hmm. because it, it, that accelerates over time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's hear a clip from the movie. I think this would be a good uh, time. to. This is a clip. Uh, it's Alive. It's a famous clip. And mm -hmm. uh, I chose to put in a little discussion between Dr. Frankenstein and, and I guess this is his mentor, Dr. Waldman. Um, oh. So he's telling Dr. Waldman, I, I've mm -hmm. discovered the secret. Yeah. And then we skip ahead to the, the, the famous passage where the monster comes to life. Dr. Waldman, I learned a great deal from you at the university about the violet ray, the ultraviolet ray, which you said was the highest color in the spectrum. You were wrong. Here in this machinery, I have gone beyond that. I have discovered the great ray that first brought life into the world. Oh, and your proof? Tonight you shall have your proof. At first I experimented only with dead animals, and then a human heart which I kept beating for three weeks. But now I am going to turn that ray on that body and endow it with life. And you really believe that you can bring life to the dead? That body is not dead. It has never lived. I created it. I made it with my own hands from the bodies I took from graves, from the gallows, anywhere. Go and see for yourself. It's alive! 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 It's alive!
So that's from the 1931 movie, which I think a lot of us are familiar with. That's sort of the iconic images. Boris Karlov as the monster with a screw through the neck and then mm-hmm. all that thing. Uh, at the end there, he's he sounds crazy. And uh, I guess that's a point that, that I, I think is in the novel. Um, now I know what it feels like to be God. It's We're, we're testing the boundaries here, right? And, and uh, Mary Shelley, certainly the, the movie screenwriters are saying that's... It's problematic. Well, it's in interesting the, the the reference to God there in the clip. the The original novel actually doesn't have very much to say about religion or God. Mm-hmm. Uh, Victor is much more concerned with the social and moral implications of what he's done than the the spiritual or religious implications of it. Mm-hmm. That's a uh, a development in the story that occurred after the the eighteen twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, the novel comes out in eighteen eighteen. By 1823, there are stage versions of it, including one that's called Presumption, or The Fate of Frankenstein. And you can hear in the word presumption the the new sense in the story that this is really about defying the will of God. Mary Shelley saw that production in 1823, and then when she revised the novel in 1831, she kind of built in and played up that sense of, of transgression against the, the divine. Mm-hmm. And that then is what um, ends up in the, in the pop culture versions in the 20th century, that it's about science versus religion. But the original novel has very little to say about religion and really even less to say about science. Mm-hmm. All of the, the, the electricity and the bolts and the test tubes and all that kind of wonderful imagery from the Carlyle film isn't in the novel at all. Shelley's much more interested in, again, the social and moral conditions of this knowledge rather than in its actual technological production. Yeah, I think it's interesting that when the uh, creature in the novel is uh, off on his path of self-education, he comes across these books by, uh, by Milton and Goethe and Plutarch, and, and these works all have to do with how to make a human being, not, of course, in any kind of biological sense, but with Plutarch, how to make a, a great man, a great hero sort of person, and with Goethe, how to how to develop this self-culture and become an enlightened human being. With Milton, it's it's about these relations between a creator and a creature and, the, and how you preserve a kind of creature's freedom within that space. But it's all about how to become a human being. But of course, there's no technological apparatus around that at all. This is, brings us to another you know, obvious and huge difference between the, the film and the, the novel. When the creature finally does show up in the novel, mm-hmm. Victor's telling his story and then the creature shows up. And you expect, if you are a fan of Karloff, you expect that page in the novel simply to read, <laughs> the creature advances across this glacier ice to Victor, who's watching him come with fear and loathing and dread. And then uh, you get this speech. And I'll, I'll just read this short passage from the novel. Here's the first thing the creature says. I expected this reception. (laughs) All men hate the wretched. How then must I be hated, who am miserable beyond all living things? Yet you, my creator, detest and spurn me, thy creature, to whom thou art bound by ties only dissoluble by the annihilation of one of us. You propose to kill me? How dare you sport thus with life? And I'll spare you the next two hours of me reading this book out loud. (laughs) The creature then launches into a 50, 60-page story of how he has learned to become this educated, this articulate, this compassionate, this feeling, this rational. Mm -hmm. He really ends up being, thanks to reading Milton uh, and the other books that Charlie Mm -hmm. mentioned, the most fully-fledged human in the book. Right. Yeah, there's an irony, right? It is. And it— uh, makes Shelley's novel so much more interesting than the movie in this respect because the you know in, when when you have this big hulking creature that just says Arr, right it's easier to acknowledge the regrettable necessity of having to kill him right but when you have a creature as thoughtful as the one that uh, whose words Brian was just reading it becomes much more complicated and uh, and he's got a legitimate point of view right. And so the, the depth of the characters in Shelley's novel is, is, uh, makes it 
that's part of its appeal as well. And you can see how in the in the film versions, the emphasis is all about biology, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Can we construct a human being out of body parts? Can we do this technically, scientifically? In the novel, uh, just to reinforce Charlie's earlier point, it's all about how we build humans from the inside, psychologically, mm-hmm. socially, morally. That's what Shelley really cares about, is what it means to be human, not in a biological sense at all, but in a, a yeah. psychological and social sense. And that's why, to get a little preachy, Sorry, Tom, you're not going to get a word in edgewise. Uh, <laughs> once you finish here, we'll, we'll hear another clip, which, okay. which fits in right now. Well, this is what makes it such a great Connections novel, because these students are you know, beginning a college career, and I think often what they're told is, you've got to get the technical skills so that you can get a job and have a good life, and, and I'm not denying that, but there's that inner development of a human being as well, right? We don't just want technicians, but we want good neighbors, good citizens, good parents, good members of the PTA, and so on. So it's, it's about this inward development of a human being. So let's hear this clip. This is uh, Two Brains. This is Dr. Waldman. Um, I've now acquired the European accent that, <laughs> the, 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 that I heard in the, in the movie. So Dr. Waldman is giving a lecture in front of a class, kind of a typical medical school scene with the, mm-hmm. the, the tiered uh, uh, seats, and he has a couple of brains in front of him. And in conclusion, ladies and gentlemen, here we have one of the most perfect specimens of the human brain that has ever come to my attention at the university. And here the abnormal brain of the typical criminal. Observe, ladies and gentlemen, the scarcity of convolutions on the frontal lobe as compared to that of the normal brain, and the distinct degeneration of the middle frontal lobe. All of these degenerate characteristics check amazingly with the case history of the dead man before us, whose life was one of brutality, of violence, and murder. Both of these jars will remain here for your further inspection. Thank you, gentlemen. The class is dismissed. So, uh, Professor McCuskey, this is what you were talking about, the, the films emphasizing the physical brain. The film emphasizes brains and the importance of not dropping them, <laughs> which is what happens, uh, whereas the novel emphasizes minds and the importance of not wasting them, right. which almost everyone in the novel does. And uh, that's where you see the emphasis again on, on psychology over biology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the novel, as you said before, the irony is the monster is, or the creature is uh, maybe the most human. He's very self-reflective. Well, he's the most human, but he's also, of course, an arsonist and a child killer yeah. and mm-hmm. a serial killer. And so it's... A, so he is the most human. So he, I, <laughs> I guess so. He, um, he has the most potential and thus fails yeah. the most spectacularly. The novel raises large questions about individual responsibility versus collective social responsibility. The creature genuinely wants to be and do good. He, he tries his best to fit in. He's constantly running around. Well, he's not even eating meat. He's a kind of, you know, berry-picking, vegan, helpful citizen. And no one will let him be that because all they can see is what Shelley describes as a filthy mass. Mm. And so it's his treatment at the hands of human society, which, of course, has no choice but to reject him, that prompts him over time to become increasingly violent, resentful. Yeah. And I think there's a way in which the Karloff film mirrors our ambivalency because we're given all the information. The creature's got a bad brain, right? He's got this violent brain and so on. But then as the, as the movie progresses, Boris Karloff is a sweetie, right? He, he, he loves the sunshine. He uh, seems to be forming a nice relationship with this little girl that he comes across uh, up until that goes bad. Um, but and and so on, at one level, the novel is saying you can't blame. I'm sorry, the film is saying you can't blame the creature. He's got a bad brain. But then the creature does all these nice things that don't seem to match that kind of diagnosis. But then in the end, uh, he ends up the creature being killed. And I think the audience is supposed to feel well. That's that's the right result, right? So is the yeah. creature responsible or not? And the film seems to play our sensibilities back and forth on that. Uh, here's a good uh, place to. Uh, we, we've got some uh, clips from Young Frankenstein, Mel Brooks' classic movie from Excellent. 1974. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can talk a little bit about how how Frankenstein, the idea, has changed over in, in popular culture. You were saying before we went on the air, after we heard the clip, we can talk about this. That in some ways, Young Frankenstein, you know, captures uh, the, the, the truth uh, maybe better than some of the other movies. Mm. 
but frankly, this is this is just a, a great excuse to laugh and, and hear the <laughs> hear, hear the genius that is Gene Wilder and Marty Feldman. Gene Wilder is Dr. Frankenstein. Marty Frankenstein, Feldman, I think. Frankenstein. Yes. And uh, Marty Feldman is his assistant, Igor. Yes. Yes. Uh, or Igor, there's a, there's a debate back and <laughs> back and forth. Igor has been tasked with going out and getting a brain. Mm-hmm. He's obviously gotten the wrong brain. Uh, here we have Young Frankenstein. Okay, that's uh, that's a different clip. That's uh, um, Gene Wilder's version of "It's Alive." The one we want is I'm trying to think how it's labeled. Um, it's, it's also there. good. It's, it's of the creature. Yeah, uh, uh, Abby Normal. Yes. Abby Normal is what we want. Right. Igor, <clears throat> may I speak to you for a moment? Of course. Sit down, won't you? Thank you. Now that brain that you gave me was it? Hans Delbrooks? No. Ah. Good. Uh, would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? And you won't be angry? I will not be angry. Abby someone. Abby someone. Abby who? Abby normal. Abby Normal. I'm almost sure that was the name. (laughs) Are you saying that I put an abnormal brain into a seven and a half foot long, 54 inch wide gorilla? Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, that's good stuff. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I don't have. Uh, this is an observation. I don't have anything uh, delightful to say about it. But you know, Igor was supposed to get the brain of Hans Delbruck, and Hans Delbruck is the name of a, a famous historian of the 19th century. So there is an actual guy named Hans. Delbrook and how Mel Brooks or Gene Wilder came across that and decided to insert poor Hans into this story, I have no idea, or what it's supposed to mean, if anything. You know, in the in the ni- in the 1931 film, there's actually more comedy in that film than people give it credit for. That whole scene is encapsulated in one moment that we can't play on the radio because it's simply a silent look where Waldman uh, tells Victor, you know, the the brain you took from my laboratory was a criminal brain. And uh, he's called Henry Frankenstein in the film. Mm-hmm. He does a little double take and then looks over his shoulder as if thinking to himself, Fritz. <laughs> and then looks back at Waldman and says, uh, oh, well. <laughs> That's right. Small uh, problem. I guess what Mary Shelley is, is, is talking about and, and in the films, uh, you kind of get into a nature versus nurture thing. Mm. You know, you Frankly, the, the monster has the wrong brain. Mm-hmm. He's able to, in some ways, overcome that. Mm-hmm. It's very human, compassionate, etc. There are circumstances, and you can argue about uh, you know what responsibility the creature has. Right, right, right. With, he does go on to commit arson and murder, and you know. Right. Any good monster story, and Frankenstein isn't a bad one, mm-hmm. will shape its narrative according to the the current cultural concerns and anxieties. This is certainly true of vampires. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also true here that at the beginning of the 19th century, a lot of the kind of public, critical, philosophical discourse was about socialization and education and psychology. And so Shelley is writing a monster novel about those issues. At the beginning of the 20th century, in the, particularly in the 30s, um, a lot of the, the political public discourse was about eugenics mm-hmm. and uh, scientific advances. And so it makes sense that that version of the story leans much more heavily on bad brains mm-hmm. and ultraviolet rays and all mm-hmm. of that good stuff. And as we were saying before, do you rehabilitate the monster? Do you kill him? You right. know, that's, that, yeah, what are, are, what are your too. options? At yeah. This? Mm-hmm. yeah, that's right. 
um, I, in, in reading about Frankenstein, one of the sources I came across was a really interesting new series of graphic novels about Frankenstein telling the story, uh, uh, telling the story of the creature uh, after a bungled attempt for the creature to kill himself you know, at the North Pole, which that's at the end of uh, the novel, you are expecting that that's what the, what the creature will have done. Uh, but in this uh, series of graphic novels, he fails at that. He can't kill himself, and so he ends up as a uh, as a member of a circus freak show. Uh, and it's it's a very interesting graphic novel because it's showing the creature trying to develop himself further. You know, trying not to be a monster, although he has to earn his living as a monster in the freak show. Uh, and so that's it's marvelous to see the other stories that spin out of this great story. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll uh, hear more about uh, the differences between the films and the book. One thing I learned by, you know, just reading uh, just sort of the plot of the, the book. By the way, on the, on the website, the Connections, USU Connections website, there's, a, there's about an eight-minute synopsis of the, mm-hmm. uh, in, in a video retelling of, of the book. Um, the monster, the creature, attempts to fit in. He, he wants to fit in. That's that's one of his big desires. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he and he learns from this this family that he that he views through a, I guess mm-hmm. through a crack in the in the wall or something. Mm-hmm. A family that disappears from every other version of Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah. Right. that's very interesting. Good talking about that and um, and Mary Shelley, some some aspects and the times, mm-hmm. all of that following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Humanities Council, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities. Online at utahumanities.org. Israeli-American composer Ofer Ben-Amotz combines Jewish folk music with contemporary textures. He joined me on stage last week at the Grand Teton Music Festival. Highlights from that conversation and a stirring performance of his Odessa Trio coming up on Friday's Performance Today from APM. Friday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Talk about Frankenstein. And we are talking about Boris Karloff. And uh, I suppose we could get talking about Monster Mass, this green mass for Halloween. But if you dive into the book by Mary Shelley, published in 1818, revised in 1831, I believe, uh, there's much more there. And this is a very prescient novel. It uh, talks about big issues. What does it mean to be human? What responsibilities do we have to each other? How far can we go in tampering with nature? Of course, in our age... These questions are more relevant than ever. Frankenstein, the novel, is the book chosen for this year's USU Common Literature Experience. It's part of the USU Connections course for incoming freshmen. The entire campus community is invited to join along with reading Frankenstein. This all culminates with a Convocations lecture that's happening tomorrow morning, Saturday morning, 9.30 a.m. in the USU Kent Concert Hall. It'll be given by USU Associate Professor of English Brian McCuskey and USU Philosophy Professor uh, Charlie Heineman, and they join me on the program today. Uh, we've neglected to open the phone lines, and perhaps we have people who would like to comment. 1-800-826-1495 is the number. Love to get your take. What's your favorite Frankenstein uh, movie? Uh, have you read the book? What do you find in the book that's maybe different from the movies? Uh, what are some of the themes that resonate with you? 1-800-826-1495. And you can join us by email as well to upraxcess at gmail.com. Upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Uh, one of the things I learned from uh, you know looking at the materials uh, you two uh, gentlemen have online is... Science and pseudoscience, and how mm. that was sort of mixed up yeah. in in the I guess the 18th and 19th yeah. centuries, the time that Mary Shelley was being I guess excited about and responding to advances in science. Yeah, a lot of times I think today we find ourselves very confident in being able to sort out what's genuine science from what is pseudoscience or or superstition or something like that. But that's a very uh, long and hard-won battle. Uh, throughout the 17th, 18th, 19th century, it was a constant effort to try to sort out what could be real and what couldn't be real. Uh, most people are surprised to learn that Newton uh, was a great alchemist and also a kind of uh, 
what would you say, uh, over-enthusiastic reader of the book of Revelations, trying to track out exactly when the end of the days will be and so on. Um, but no one in the day thought that that was an odd feature of Newton, that he was doing physics and alchemy and uh, strange biblical interpretation. Everybody was doing all of that kind of stuff, and that extended throughout these centuries. Uh, it's it's hard to characterize what nature can allow and then what would be supernatural or beyond nature. And, it, and it's, uh, I, I shouldn't be understood to be saying that we've got that one nailed, that we've settled it down. It's still an ongoing contest to try to figure that out. The particular debate at Shelley's time was between vitalism and materialism. Mm-hmm. Vitalism was an older uh, scientific theory that argued that life is something kind of super added that you, mm-hmm. you had your, your body, but then there was a life principle or life force, mm-hmm. uh, like gravity, something mm-hmm. external to the body that uh, was in it. Mm-hmm. And that's what Victor is trying to find and eventually does find. And that vitalism was competing with a, a newer theory and the, and the one that has actually um, then taken root as, as what we now would call real science, not mm-hmm. pseudoscience, that life is sort of a, a, a byproduct of having the cells of the body together in this particular way. It's a, a more materialistic way of thinking about what life is. Mm-hmm. And so um, critics love to argue, does Shelley's novel endorse vitalism or materialism? Because in a lot of ways, Shelley's arguing that, that the body is more mechanistic and materialistic than previous uh, scientists, 17th, 18th century scientists would have thought. On the other hand, Victor wins. I mean, he discovers the life principle, so he seems to endorse that older, what we now call kind of pseudoscientific vitalism. I was also interested to put uh, Mary Shelley in the context of her, you know, her family, her, her set, right? She's right. M- married to the famous poet Shelley, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. hung around with Lord Byron, um, and then I guess they came up with this this idea. She comes up with the idea when they're in, I think, Switzerland and in, in Geneva, and that yeah, in, in sort of this this stew of. Um, of excitement, and I could see where you'd you'd have some uh, ideas about uh, education, knowledge, and uh, maybe maybe we're getting to the realm of unlimited knowledge and knowledge taking us places we you know exciting places we've never gone before, and and, and therefore we need to look at the limits and and birth and reproduction as well. Mary Shelley was born Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin. She's the daughter of. William Godwin, who's an 18th century uh, kind of radical writer, novelist, and and philosopher, and Mary Wollstonecraft, who is an equally radical uh, 18th and 19th uh, 18th century uh, philosopher and and writer. And her mother died 10 days after Mary was born. Mm -hmm. Mary herself, then, when she was 16, runs off with Percy Shelley, and their courtship was largely conducted at the grave of Mary Wollstonecraft, where Mary liked to come and read. Which is creepy. Yes, and so you can begin to see the sort of origins Very romantic of too. <laughs> literature and science and and thinking about birth and reproduction and, and regeneration. Um, by the time, that, that's when Mary was 16, she runs off with, with Percy, who was married, unfortunately. And uh, two years later, then they end up, as you say, Tom, in Switzerland with Lord Byron, who was famously mad, bad, and dangerous to know, the, the worst of the romantic poets. Uh, when it came to social etiquette, and uh, and actually Byron's uh, personal physician too, John Polidori, and it's the weather is so bad in Switzerland apparently in June 1816 that they decide, hey, let's have a ghost story contest. And um, if you're Mary Shelley, you're s- sitting there with two of the greatest writers of your generation, and and then a very well educated doctor. What chance have you got of winning that contest? And so with some anxiety and trepidation, she agreed to participate and was so excited then to report in her diary that she had thought of a story. And she actually begins uh, writing Frankenstein uh, right at that moment, beginning with the the famous creation scene, which uh, I'll just read a couple of sentences if we have time for that. So she begins, it was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning, the rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out, when, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. 
<laughs> and so she begins there, and um, everyone else's ghost story kind of fails. Uh, <laughs> Polidori wrote something uh, about a vampire that ended up being published. But, but I think it's safe to say at this point that she won that particular contest. Indeed. And this is, this is Mary Shelley writing uh, at an age uh, at which our incoming freshmen are. Mm-hmm. Right, she, June yeah, 1816, she yeah, is 18 mm-hmm. years old. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it took another year and a half for Frankenstein to be published. It was published New Year's Day, 1818. And so at exactly the time when she would have been in college, if women had been allowed to attend university, she's writing this book instead. Yeah. And so one, yeah. of our, one of our jokes that Charlie and I have enjoyed kind of exploring this summer as we've talked about the novel is that this story, in a way, is a kind of revenge story. Yeah, uh, right. it was Mary Shelley being mad she didn't get to go to college and showing what happens when stupid men do. <laughs> yeah, I think we forget that women were not allowed to go to college. No, that's right. That's right. And, and it's fairly recent that they they were. Yeah, and galling. I'm sure in, in uh, Mary Shelley's circumstance because her her dad is her dad is uh, an exception, I suppose, to the 19th century rule. He's very liberal minded, and of course, uh, Mary Shelley's mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, was an exception to the societal norm, I suppose. And so uh, Mary Shelley could see all of the intellects around her, right, coming to Godwin's house at, at soirees and parties and so on. And so she had contact with all these educated people. She was extremely intelligent herself. And yet, you know, because she was a woman, she was denied access to the club, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. She was allowed to sit and listen to the conversations yeah. that her father would have with his friends, including Samuel Taylor Col- Coleridge and, mm-hmm. and Percy Shelley himself. But she wasn't really allowed to participate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, as, as you say, a revenge kind of a you know novel about education, the perils. Well, there's also a father revenge mm-hmm. thing going on here too. Yeah. Is mm-hmm. when she runs off with Percy Shelley, William Godwin, despite having led a very unconventional romantic life himself, refuses to see her for two and a half years. Mm-hmm. So he has a very conservative, um, very kind of patriarchal response to her active rebellion. And you can see some of that need to rebel against your dad in the novel itself, that Victor talks a lot about how if only his father had been more understanding, he might not have gone so horribly wrong in his studies. Let me reintroduce our our guests. So we have with us Associate Professor of English, uh, Brian McCuskey, and... uh, philosophy professor Charlie Heineman with us, both from Utah State University, and uh, they'll be giving Convocations lecture tomorrow morning at 9.30. Everyone is invited. That's in the USU Kent Concert Hall. They'll be talking about Frankenstein. Frankenstein, the novel, of course, uh, also the 1931 movie and other movies, mm-hmm. including Young Frankenstein, I suppose, uh, how this has gone into popular culture. This is the book chosen as the USU Common Literature Experience. It happens every year about this time. Incoming freshmen take the Connections course. They're invited to read a, a, a book, and the entire campus community is invited to join in. We're talking about Frankenstein and all, all its many iterations and the themes on the program today, you're welcome to join us at 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. And the email is upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Let's hear another clip from the 1931 movie. This is uh, Dr. Frankenstein and Elizabeth on their wedding day. Elizabeth uh, can tell something is wrong. The, the audio is a little bit problematic here, but I think you can understand this. Of course there isn't. Henry, I'm afraid, terribly afraid. Stay here. Henry. Henry. 
the novel is uh, I, I was surprised the novel because some of these characters don't appear in the mo- in many of the movies mm-hmm. um there's a there's a big price that dr frankenstein pays here the, uh, in, the in his family yeah the film here gets the novel exactly right that along the lines we've been discussing elizabeth is really kind of mary shelley's avatar in the novel she's the smartest person in the novel. She's the only one who really starts to ask questions about what exactly Victor is up to. And it's even funnier in the book than it is in this scene, because at one point she says to Victor, you know, do you love another? And Victor sort of, uh, no, no, of course not. Um, but it's it's clear that Elizabeth should be going to, to university <laughs> instead mm-hmm. of Victor. She, um, she writes these long letters that he ignores. She um, uh, is a reasonable, empathetic, uh, you know, she's the second most human creature in the novel after the creature itself. Mm. And so here you see Victor shutting, in the film clip we heard, you hear Victor shutting out Elizabeth, rejecting yet another social tie that he should be instead um, uh, relying upon to, to bring him back into line. Mm-hmm. Let's hear another, uh, our last clip here. This is uh, from Young Frankenstein. And again, it's sort of an excuse just to laugh, but it, it, I think it captures um, uh, sort of some of the spirit of the book. Which, in this way, the creature, he's looking for family, right? He's looking for connection. He's, he's in fact, he, he wants uh, Dr. Frankenstein to make him a, a woman, which, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's, there's some plot that happens uh, along those lines. Right. The, the creature understands the importance of these domestic, social friendships and, and, uh, and relationships far better than Victor does. Yeah. So let's hear this. This is uh, this Gene Wilder. You hear singing, putting on the Ritz, and then uh, famously chiming in Peter Boyle as uh, as as the monster. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Different types who wear a day coat, pants with stripes, or cutaway coat, perfect fits. Dressed up like a million-dollar trooper Trying mighty hard to look like Gary Cooper Come, let's mix where Rockefellers walk with sticks Or umbrellas in their midst This is from Young Frankenstein, Mel Brooks' classic movie, 1974. What you're hearing there is uh, is going very well, and then uh, the, then the monster sees fire. Yeah. This is something that I don't think is in the book. He, he's not afraid of fire, is he? Anyway. There's, I mean, this is Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder's comic genius, uh, because, you know, what what is Frankenstein trying to do in this situation? He's trying to impress his colleagues that he's created this civilized human being. And so in a non-comedic uh, venue, you might expect some sort of very high-level cognitive discussion, right? So that these fellow doctors can be impressed with the intellect and soul and spirit of this creature. But instead, of course, with Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder, they put on a show and this ridiculous cartoon dance and kind of playing with our confusion over how do you demonstrate to somebody else that you're a good human being? 
Right. right. The highest level of humanity is, of course, a show tune. Right. Right. And the yeah. fact that the monster can't carry it through to the end shows that he must be destroyed and, and the whole thing goes down. Right. You know? We just have a couple minutes left. And uh, just quickly at the end here, I'm wondering... Is, is there something lost or added when, when I think of Frankenstein and I, the first thing I think of is Frau Blucher, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. Is that, I mean, you know, we want to go back to the novel. That's what we're doing here in the common literature experience. Does all of this add to it or, or does it sort of, mm. you know, make it into a stereotype? Well, one of the ways that I like to think about novels like this that have so many versions is there's a temptation to think in terms of the original mm. and then everything else is a falling off from the original but in a way there's no original story here right mary shelley wrote the middle first and then she went back and and after she had the creation scene down she wrote victor's story around the creation scene she wrote robert walton around that she's watching a play version in 1823 and then she's revising that so that the story is substantially changed by 1831 there's no moment at which the story intact original perfect ever really existed and so when you watch the 30, 1931 film or you watch young frankenstein or the the brownie version with uh, robert, robert de niro they aren't being faithful or unfaithful to anything. They're simply retelling the story of the creature in a way that makes sense to audiences at that particular moment. Yeah, there's there's a truth. Uh, uh, 30 oh. seconds. Oh, <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, it's interesting that there's, there's a truth that happens at two levels about whether a creator is in control of their creature, right? And in Frankenstein, we see that he isn't. But then uh, in any kind of artistic production, the, the creature, what gets created, uh, ends up being larger and taking on a life of its own that goes beyond any of the creator's intentions. Which is what the novel has done. Yeah. Well, much more to uh, learn about Frankenstein, discuss, and you have the opportunity, if you're going to be in northern Utah, to come to the uh, Convocations Lecture. It's the culmination of the Connections course and the Common Literature Experience at USU. That's tomorrow morning, 9.30, in the USU Kent Concert Hall on the USU campus. Associate Professor of English Brian McCuskey and uh, USU philosophy professor Charlie Heineman. Gentlemen, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crown Brothers Addison Bread in Logan, open for breakfast Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and Saturdays at 8 a.m., offering a selection of French pastries and a variety of sweet and savory menu items. Details at chromebrothers.com. On the next On Being. When people come to my restaurant, what I try and do, besides growing the best carrots and besides cooking them with the best technique, is provide a story. Because when you provide a story, you generally connect people to food in, in a way that they otherwise wouldn't taste certain ingredients. Celebrated chef, thinker, and social visionary, Dan Barber. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Sunday night at 8 on Utah Public Radio. Brian Goldman was always a perfect student. A classmate of mine in high school once said that Brian Goldman would study for a blood test. Now that he's a doctor, he teaches med students. Many of them have that look in their eyes that they're pristine. They've never made a mistake, and they never will. Of course, until it happens making mistakes. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thank you for listening to Access Utah. Utah Public Radio is a service of uh, the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. The time now is 10 o'clock in the morning.